0: The great Impressionist masters painted all their lives. If we google their names, we find them appearing as famous legends. But who made money out of their paintings? Did they or someone else? Edouard Monet quickly became known in Paris mainly due to the compositions and subject matters that seemed to question the viewers in an arrogantly direct manner. Enough was written and mocked about his art. Of course, the government-sponsored exhibitions did not entertain him except for once when they were displayed in the Salon des Refusés. The sensations were not in favour though. Of course, his friend and the famous author Emil Jola wrote a fiery article declaring that money was the future whose painting would one day hang on the wall of the Louvre. Thankfully, his inheritances kept him going. Paintings did not sell or sold occasionally that could not provide him a decent living. At the age of 40, the first bite of pain in his leg sank its teeth. And Eventually, it made the artist extremely weak. Walking turned painful. He could not roam around the city enjoying the vibrance of the crowd. And finally, at the age of 49, Manet passed away as another victim of syphilis. It was 1883. Cezanne, after dropping out of his study of law, began to pursue his career as artist. But soon he understood that the quick route to money and fame would not permit him access. The government salon would not accept his art. So he decided to retire into anonymity. Cézanne left Paris and settled in his father's estate in Aix-en-Provence. He did not exhibit. He did not even go out of the countryside for next 20 years. In a nutshell he vanished from public life and kept on painting tirelessly. Eventually one fine morning when Cezanne was under the burden of mounting debt, there was a knock on his door. Well I shall get back to the starting point of Cezanne's life in a while. Let us consider what happened to others. Edgar Degas a friend of Manet for many years was refused by the salon too and he went on exhibiting with the expressionist rebels. Like Manet, he too hardly could sell any painting but earned from the portraits he made in the evening. His father was a wealthy banker but when the father passed away, Degas discovered a huge pile of date that he had to settle over a period of time. Hence, despite a reasonable family fortune, Dega had to struggle to survive, notwithstanding Dega could afford to keep painting while laying low with a very modest lifestyle. And when he was 30, his eyesight began to go blank at times. Finally by the age of 36, he ended up almost blind. But he lived up to the age of 83. But why is it important? I shall get back to that soon. In case of Monet, health did not falter, and he lived long up to the age of 86, when he was famous and rich. Van Gogh, an outsider, could never sail beyond one painting in his 37 years of life and shot himself to death. Paul Gauga too, like Cezanne, disappeared among the tribes in Tahiti Island looking for that place under the sun which might bring him the peace and relaxation as well as simplicity he had been seeking all his life. No fame, no money reached the man in exchange of his genius touch on the canvas until he died. But this happened more because he too stayed as an outsider of the impressionist world. Now these were all legends. Their efforts changed the course of art. But when did they get any monetary return? At what age? For that, we must note two turning points in the history of art. The first was when the art dealer Paul Durand-Ruel began to purchase entire studios of the artists like Mane, Monet, Degas, Marie cassatt Pissarro and so on. The other one was when Ambroise Vollard began to give solo shows to late Van Gogh or Cézanne. Let me describe the background of Paul Durand-Ruel in brief. His family owned a painting material shop. When the artists could not pay their dues, they began to exchange the materials against their paintings. And soon they realized that the paintings had a market. Eventually, they turned a full-fledged dealer. Usually, art dealers are of two kinds. One category is entrepreneurial and the other is ideological. The first kind dominates the art market at all times. But the ideological art dealers are altruistic. They promote a particular kind of art they believe in. Commercial aspects do not hold priority for them. In fact, Such dealers are long term investors who aim at a large return over a long period of time. Paul turned out to be one of those rare ideological dealers. He began buying slow, but in a couple of years, the momentum increased. During 1875 1876, Paul Durand Ruel began to buy entire studios of the Impressionist masters. Of course, at cheap prices, he acquired the paintings, but he bought when hardly anybody purchased their works. And it is at that time that Paul durand ruel had knocked the door of Cézanne. However, you can see almost all of the artists hit or crossed their middle ages by then. For instance, at 1875, Pissarro was 45, Degas was 42, Naturally, Paul could not sell the painting soon because nobody wanted impressionist paintings. In fact, it took almost 20 years for him to secure a market that paid manyfold higher than his buying prices. By that time, there was another entrant in the scene, Ambroise Ollard. He gave the first solo show to late Van Gogh on the insistence of Van Gogh's sister-in-law, Joanna van Gogh. Vollard also gave the first solo show to Cézanne. But you see, when Vollard started giving solo shows, these artists saw the smile of fame and big money. They were in their old age. Most of them were beyond 60, and some of them were already dead, like Van Gogh or Berthe Morisot. Several succumbed to death early, not always because they were particularly unfortunate, but the average lifespan in France was about 30 years at that time. The medical science was yet to develop. In the end, we can see that the drivers of change paid the price of innovation and rebellion through suffering and crisis. Neither did they make money nor enjoyed fame. Of course, there was good enough mockery and ridicule about them. Interestingly, the conformists who were accepted by the salon and earned money as well as respect during this period vanished without leaving a trace in the history of art. My view stands valid so far. Art survived because of the craftsmen who treated it like any other trade of skill, whereas art changed the direction because of a handful of men and women propelled by passion and love for what they have been doing. Picasso, Matisse, and those whom we do not remember. Henry Matisse entered the art scene during the late 19th century, and Picasso did the same a little later. Picasso was 12 years younger than Matisse. The time of their arrival was marked by the aftermath of the Western world learning to not only appreciate but to accept as standard the paintings of Van Gogh, Gauguin, and Cézanne. The game-changing art dealer Ambroise Vollard held shows of the paintings of Van Gogh as well as Cézanne. Monet's shocking representations and subject matters and Monet's rough brushstrokes turned into convention for the public. Impressionism was no more a sacrilege in the temple of art. In fact, the wave of change was pushed further by Edward Munch by his painting of the scream. Expressionism arrived too. Hence, the stage was set for some radical landslide in convention. Rather than saying that the viewers were prepared to absorb the newness, it is better to say that the art world was hungry for something new. It was now a habit, not an exception anymore. As for Expressionism, the trend began right from the style of Van Gogh and Goga. Both of them discarded the compulsion of lightness. Remaining true to the actual colour of the objects they depicted on canvas felt like a handicap in expressing the real spirit. Hence, Van Gogh altered the colour of the wall, bedsheet, and so on in the painting of the bedroom in Earls. While waiting for Goga to arrive in Earls, Van Gogh painted the Christ. He wrote to his brother Theo, I painted a figure of Christ in blue and orange and an angel in yellow, red earth, hills green and blue, olive trees, green-gray-blue foliage, a citron-yellow sky. Well, Van Gogh was not happy with the outcome and considered it a complete disaster. He destroyed it. But you see, the spirit of the artist is held in the aforesaid sentence. In the painting Scream, Edward Munch took recourse to distortion more along the line of caricature. In fact caricature or cartoon had since long been the ideal form of expressionism. Have a glance at the line drawing of the screen you will find in the internet. You will appreciate the element of caricature in the form. Hence expressionism through distortion was already in vogue. In this backdrop, we must take a pause and consider the challenge the new artists encountered. According to the impressionists, the earlier realists were not really faithful to what they saw. They painted things as they should be or as they knew they were, not as they really looked like. Hence, it was a lie when they claimed that they depicted reality. The impressionists wanted to be strictly objective. This means they wanted to depict exactly what they saw. If the objects appeared grainy in bare eyes, they painted them grainy, even if they knew that the object was solid. But now, the New Age artists saw a fallacy in the whole affair of the Impressionists. The catch was in the fact that even if the Impressionists wanted to project what they saw in the bare eyes, yet the visual input had to pass through their minds, and the mind was aware of the object's shape and color. Hence, what they ended up projecting was not pure visual input, but something modified by the mind. Therefore, the Impressionists' objectivity did not really remain faithful enough. There was no escape from the knowledge of the object. It is in the mind. To top it all, remaining true to the object's outwardly appearance killed the prospect of imbibing the spirit of the scene. So they faced a question mark. Does it make sense in breaking their head on how to depict an object? If the answer was a resounding no then why not make it simple and at that point arrived the sculpture of the tribes of Africa. At various curio shops such sculptures were sold at cheap rates. The simplicity in depicting a face or an object through flat planes and sharp straight edges pointed at the future of art and then entered Matisse. He adopted two unique ways He simplified the shapes and forms and used color to express the spirit. His paintings indeed shocked the crowd in the beginning because of their bright and contrasting hues. The comic art critic Louis Vauxhall called it phobism. It was not in good spirit but a disparaging remark. Phobes meant wild beasts. I call him a comic art critic because he did not only fail to read the genius in Matisse, but also in George Braque at a later date. The same critic named the style of Braque that was clearly influenced by the new style of Picasso as Cubism. It was a sarcasm to mean that the painting was nothing more than a bunch of cubes. Anyhow take a look at any painting by Matisse. You can see the flattening as well as the simplification of forms and the bright and arrogant contrast of colors. Hence, we can say that the forms were the expressionists of color who disregarded the complexity of forms. They simplified and twisted the forms to the convenience shooting the spirit. But in the end, the focus revolved around color. At the time when Matisse was hunting for recognition as a legend in the making, a brother-sister duo arrived in Paris, the Stains, Leo Stein and Gertrude Stein. Having inherited a large family fortune, yet without any close relative to pull them back to their homeland, America, they drifted to the city of Art. Leo probably had a casual aspiration to become an artist and hence ended up in the company of artists and uh, frequented art galleries. On the other hand, his sister Gertrude, after failing to get an admission as a medical student, left for the same destination as her brother did. They soon found themselves collecting artworks of various emerging artists. They had money but not as much money as to afford the classic artworks of the old masters. To top it all, they were the outsiders of the world of art. And so was Matisse and another young man named Pablo Picasso. Hence, there was a natural connection between the stains and the emerging young artists. They purchased a few paintings from both. But soon, Matisse began to gather popularity and following among the young band of artists. They invested more into Matisse, a perpetual cycle set off. More they acquired Matisse, more Matisse made his name as the flag bearer of the future train. In the meantime, a Russian business tycoon was fascinated by Matisse's works and began to purchase his work. On the other hand, Picasso was struggling to make a dent. The stains were his friends, but their focus was Matisse. Picasso refused to be a follower of Matisse but resolved to challenge his supremacy by coming up with something radical and new not along the line of the Forbes. Also Picasso saw his clear advantage over Matisse. Thanks to a tumultuous affair that ended with a baby girl and a parted lover followed by a marriage with another woman, Matisse was rather conservative and less adventurous in his relationships. To top it all, a mega-scale financial fraud shaking entire France involved the name of his father-in-law. The old man got entangled in it unwittingly, but the entire family of Matisse had to face the heat of the persecution. Due to all these reasons, Matisse had to stay cautious not to unsettle the world too much by his art or any other action. On the other hand, Picasso led a life no strings attached. He knew that he was much more fearless and enjoyed a position of advantage as far as doing something radical is concerned. In a way, Picasso knew that he had much larger degree of freedom to exercise his creative arch. But the challenge was how to come up with something radically different from that of Matisse. After all, Matisse was progressing in leaps and bounds with each of his new paintings showcased at the House of Stains. Tourists took Staines' collections of paintings, which largely consisted of Matisse's work, as a place of interest not to miss. In fact, the Stains began to open the house for display of paintings even in the night to entertain the eager art lovers. In this situation, living in the downtrodden slum like habitats of Montmartre, Picasso happened to come across Matisse showing off an African sculpture. Picasso saw it but never reacted and left in silence. And some years later he revealed his painting Le Demoiselle Davinio. In this painting, Picasso did not simplify the forms, but also broke them into various geometric shapes and rearranged them. And one of the faces was meant to look like the African masks. This aspect of painting—breaking and rearranging fragments of shapes to conjure the spirit of the desired object or person—was shockingly new. It was not what Matisse did, or what Gauguin did, or Monet did. It was similar to the trend in a way that, like his predecessors, he too presented a new form of expression. But the way it was done was completely unique. As for the African mask, Picasso used two aspects. One was, of course, the flattening simplicity of its planes and lines as well as angles. I explained the reason already in the beginning of the chapter. The other reason was his lifelong prejudice and fear of invisible magic force. He painted the African mask-like face on the right of the canvas as a magic chart to ward off evil. Why did he do all this? The very impulse driving this style was to project a part or section of an object over other sections that enjoyed a dominant impression in the mind of the artist. That is how the whole image was configured. Doing so, Picasso had to ignore the classical sense of perspective and concept of depth in space, as if space overlapped and carved at its own convenience, simply to make sure that the object makes its presence felt more profoundly on the canvas we can say that this was expressionism through shape and form unlike matisse coming up with expressionism through color and munch expressing through pure distortion of familiar shapes whatever the reasons were the whole image turned radically new placing picasso in the epicenter of the revolution in the world of art during this time the relationship between the stains and matisse began to deteriorate Leo Stein was almost an artist himself by heart, and needless to say, that Matisse was already a living legend. The ego crisis was to happen eventually. This resulted in Stein's moving closer to Picasso. The aforesaid Russian tycoon, too, collected some paintings from Picasso. And finally, Kahnweiler, an admirer of Picasso, ended up becoming his dealer. It did not take a long time for Picasso to gain fame and riches. Now, one more coincidence must be mentioned at this point. It is Albert Einstein. Of course, Picasso and Einstein did not do the same thing. Neither were there any fundamental similarity between what Picasso presented the world and what Einstein did. But the outlook resembled in a way. The work of both involved folding or wrapping of space and that too almost simultaneously in two different parts of Europe. I understand they never met each other in their lifetime and it was impossible that either of them were influenced by the other because both were obscure figures when they were coming up with their early versions of Revelation. But we cannot ignore that the two waves shaking the foundations of the world of art and science must have crossed each other's path. This means the common folks who learned about space wrapping around heavy bodies in space must have also been exposed to fragments of shapes overlapping one another on canvas. I feel these two waves augmented each other. This was coincidence in my view that in both spheres, art as well as science, similar developments happened at the same time. Hence overall, it was not surprising that Picasso did not die starving at the age of 60 or did not have to shoot himself because nobody wanted to buy his artwork. Plenty of coincidences worked in his favour. I am not downplaying the landslide he caused in the landmass of art, but trying to say that the world was hungry for something new at that juncture as a habit, and the stars acted in his favor from all quarters. Such coincidences did not happen in the lives of the earlier masters. In the next episode, let us take a quick look at the other expressionists of the time, particularly those who lived in Germany. We shall realize how misfortune and calamity consumed them even if they were no less radical than Picasso or Matisse.